much, Jason. He didn't warn me they're going to show this video. <laughs> when my, my grandson saw one of these old tapes that was played for him, not by me, he said, that's, that's not my grandfather, that's a young guy. <laughs> you know, life is like that, I guess. But uh, my first career, I was a reporter. In my second career, I practiced law and did consulting. But uh, this reminds me of the fact that in both of them, one of the constant things was change. And a lot of the change that's newsworthy is bad change. You know, if you look at the news tonight, 90% of it will be bad, and maybe they'll have a, an uplifting story at the end, maybe. Uh, the reading earlier, which I'll repeat now, is about change. Before I repeat it, though, I just got to say, I love this old church. But I really love something even more, and that is a young congregation. It's really great to see you guys. It's terrific to be here. We got here early, and my wife and I wandered around the graveyard, and we saw a remarkable gravestone. It says, no name. It's right over here, that direction. You can go look at it. It says, our mother. And then under it, it says, being dead, yet speaketh. It truly doesn't say what she's saying. <laughs> now, we all laugh at that kind of stuff, but wait a second. If you're a parent or a grandparent, the kids pick this up of what you're all about. And I remember when my daughter was going off to college, and she said, now I won't have to listen to you anymore. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, honey. I'm in your head. You, you will never escape me. My father's in my head, and my mother's in my head. She speaketh, and I don't even know why. It's just there. We grow up because people, and the good, the bad, and the ugly. So remember to accentuate the good, the loving, because those things that get in the way of us becoming who God wants us to be are the embedded feelings that I'm not good enough, the embedded feelings that I did something wrong, the embedded feelings that I'm not loved. And so when St. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, what he's saying is, you may not be all you ought to be, but you're good enough right now. You're good enough for God to love you. And any kind of things you're harboring, psychological problems, things that you know are kind of not good, habits that you can't break, God will accept your sacrifice. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is all about change. You know, we have a whole change industry out there. I was in Barnes & Noble the other day, and there may be a hundred books, self-help type books, on how you can change. I mean, at least a hundred. There are books about, oh, how you can live a healthier life, how you can diet, how you can exercise, how you can have a better sex life, 
There are books on ending addiction. There are books on finance, how you can become wealthy. You know, Jesus said, blessed are the rich, they shall inherit the earth. Wait a minute, I think I got that wrong. They already own it. It was something else he said. Darn, how did I miss that? Well, I know, because I worshipped wealth for a long time. I was gone for the church, from the church. I was gone for 30 years. I was lost. So I understand the worship of wealth. It ain't going to satisfy you in the end. But I like the books on diet and health. I've lost 20 pounds. More than 20 times. And I mean it. I mean, it all comes back. I used, to, I used to give up drinking during Lent. My other god was Jack Daniels, besides wealth. But, so in Lent, I'd give it up. You know, it's like eh, six and a half weeks, something like that. And it ends at Easter, so it's a discerning period. I can, I can actually know when I'm going to be able to have another beer. And, you know, so no alcohol, no French fries, and I'd lose 20 pounds every year. By August, I had it back. My sunrise service on Easter wasn't going out to, the, to, watch, uh, to worship God. It was, I think I'll have a beer. Now, that's pretty disgusting if you think about it, but it's a truthful stain. You know, so my father was an alcoholic, and God rest his soul. My first wife was an alcoholic, and I urged her to get into rehab, and she urged me to get out of the house. God rest her soul. Addictions are very hard to change. I work with addicts now um, in prison. I've done prison ministry, the ecumenical Kairos prison ministry. We got everything from Catholics to Pentecostals, Methodists, Episcopal, Lutherans, non-denominational. If you love Jesus, come with us. End of commercial, but it is really wonderful. More than three-fourths of the prisoners that I meet in jail are incarcerated because of drug-related crimes. They're addicts. They either stole to feed their addiction or they sold drugs so they could afford their addiction. So stole or, 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 or used or sold. Recidivism rate is high. When addicts get out, it's tough. I had one guy that said to me, you know, when I uh, had been working with him in prison for over a year in my small group in prison that we meet about once a month, and they meet once a week, and I joined them from time to time, and when he got released, everyone was really excited, and he said, I'm going to be released in a few days, and we wished him well, and four months later, he's back. And I said, what happened? And he said, well, you know, when I got to the gate and left, guess who met me? And I said, who? He said, Satan. He was chomping at the bit. All those old temptations came back. Before long, he was back where he came from, back where his friends, quote, unquote, were, back with the same gang he used to hang out with, and the same drugs were there, and they were easy, and he was back, hooked again. Satan is the gate waiting for all of us if we just backslide. I know it's not in to talk about Satan and sin, but St. Paul understood Satan and sin because he'd been up to his neck in it. 
Change is hard. All those books are out there because most people backslide, whether it's diet or exercise or whatever. Most of the self-help books fail for a very good reason. You've only got your self-help in you. (laughs) St. Paul didn't ask to be helped. God did it. And he's doing it to all of us if we just open our heart and listen. He wants us to become a better person. He wants us to be in, in harmony with him. He wants us to get rid of all those dysfunctional behaviors. My work's been about change and about dysfunctionality. As a reporter, I saw it in Watergate. I covered the trials. I saw it at Three Mile Island when the nuclear reactor had problems. I saw it covering a war in Lebanon. All these dysfunctionalities. And I had earned a law degree along the way, and so I decided, well, I'm going to go out and try to help people instead of just report about it. And so for 25 years, I was a consultant, lawyer and a consultant, for major companies in dealing with things like environmental and safety risks. One of my clients, General Motors, a guy told me, a very senior official at GM told me in 1989, I guess it was, this company will go bankrupt if it doesn't change. And in 2008, it hadn't changed, and it went bankrupt. Another one of my clients was Kodak. They saw digital technology coming. They knew it was coming and they went bankrupt. I don't need a Kodak, I got this. Think about the immensity of that change. You gotta change. But how could these risks be avoided or mitigated? I kept wondering about that in my work, and this is while I was still lost. I was not going to church. I'd stopped going to church when my daughter was old enough, 16 years old. I said, you wanna keep going to church? Bad question, but she said, no, I don't wanna go to church. Okay, I don't have to either. That was brilliant. Um, <laughs> sorry to have to confess this, but don't do that. <laughs> you know, we all learn from mistakes. It's better if it's the other guy's mistake, right? Amen. Well, I wanted to be a change agent. I like that phrase, you know. And I was reading, I was, this, is, this goes out crazy. I was reading a magazine, and it said, Change Management Fellowship. Ooh, and it was at Johns Hopkins in what is now the business school. Actually, I don't think they still have this course, but we could become a change agent. Well, that's, that's what I need to be. All these clients are all screwed up. I used actually the F word to describe them. They were all screwed up, me and Howard Wass and Jason. But, you know, we knew. Screwed up, we know what it means. It's really bad. What can I do to help them? My vision was I would come in and save them. Forgot there's already a savior. We don't need another one. Uh, The reality when I got to this this program is every Saturday or every other Saturday, we'd sit around and they'd have us in small groups, which I'd never done before, in these small groups. And mostly people talked about their problems. I kept thinking, when do I get to be a change agent? And they're all telling all these problems. And all this, oh, my marriage is on the rocks. People are talking about this stuff. And I'm going like, when do we get to the real stuff? You know, management. And... uh, I saw something I'll never forget. The most amazing thing, still the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. We were in a small group and one guy who was really a male capitalist pig, one guy says something truly obnoxious and sexist to the woman sitting next to me on the other side of the group, okay? So he says something and I look at her as he's talking and I'm thinking, oh boy, he's really gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna get it. And I look at her 
and on the back of her neck, her hair is rising. You know, you hear about hair raising? I saw it. It's like a cat. It was like unbelievable. And of course, boom, she told him off. But the thing was, I realized, you know, all this stuff about how rational you got to be, that I always like, oh, we got to be really reasonable. Our emotions run us. And so I got interested in psychology, and I realized, look, the reason they're doing all this small group stuff is because if you want to change someone else, the first person you've got to change is right here. And I wasn't ready for that. I like the way I am. Well, I really don't, but I've, I don't want to change. And I deal with companies, you know, and I go in and people say, look, we've had five change initiatives in the last 10 years, and every single one of them has petered out, and now we're going to have the 11th. So good luck. Change is tough. You have to understand psychology. Because the answer is hidden in plain sight. So I started studying psychology before I went to theology and found the real answer, but the psych studies were really interesting. Let me tell you what some of them are. First of all, there's something called positive psychology, and it's about how to be happy. And I must have 13 books on happiness from the, the period I was studying this stuff. And the studies that are in there and on the internet, on the pub info, the psych info website, are incredible. Not all of them are incredible, but some of them are incredible. Happiness defined not as hedonism, not as, you know, eating great food or sex or something like that, but he, happiness defined as joy. A study of the health of nuns over decades found that those who were most cheerful live longer and healthier lives. At age 85, 90% of the most cheerful one-fourth of the, of the quartile were alive, while only 34% of the ones who were not cheerful were still alive. So you want to increase your life, be happy. Well, how do you get there is the next part, but okay. 90% alive versus 34% alive because they, these are happy and these are, you know, not. Hmm. Positive feelings predict longevity. Happy people have a lower divorce rate, more friends, richer social interactions. Happy people tend to be more cooperative, charitable, and other-centered. This is all from these studies. These are mostly done by secular people experts, many of whom aren't religious. Positive outlook seems to help a lot too. People who describe themselves as religious score especially high on positive moods like joy and alertness. The optimism that religious, religious backgrounds bring is due to an increase in hope. Here's from a woman who suffered herself from mental illness and became a doctor and wrote about it. K. Renfield, Redfield Jameson. Some of you may have read her books. For a few, exuberance is in the blood, an irrepressible life force. It may ebb and flow, but the underlying capacity for joy is as much a part of the person as having green eyes or a long waist. How did it get there? How did that exuberance get there? Well, looking at all these psychological studies, I found that there are several ways to improve your happiness. And... I'll go through some of them in a little more detail, but here are the list. Count your blessings. Share experiences with friends. Deal with problems collaboratively. Meditate and pray. Be open for spiritual experiences. Focus on the divine. 
and forgiveness. Okay, seven things. They sound familiar? You probably heard about them in here too. That was the answer that was hiding in plain sight. The church has known this for millennia. These secular psychologists are all discovering it. And wow, isn't that something? Count your blessings. Appreciate the best in people and affirm their strengths, vitality, and potential. Gratitude produced the most joyful moments. These are from four different studies. Gratefulness is the measure of our aliveness. These are quotes from psychological studies. Keeping records of things to be grateful for produced a robust, positive feeling of health. The biggest boost from expressing gratitude was found to be when the blessings were counted once a week. Count your blessings? I've heard that before, too. Sharing experiences with others. Writing about them, but sharing them with others in small group sessions or one-on-one. Express gratitude to others. It caused the largest boost in well-being to the one who thanked someone else. So thanking someone is good for the one who thanks someone. Oh, you can really spread. This is contagious, guys. This is contagious. And you've all met sourpusses. How about, remember the ones you've met that were up? Spread the good news. Sharing gratitude helps. Students who perform five acts of kindness each day, one a day, experience a significant increase in well-being. Well, I know a lot of students that didn't do that, including me. Sharing in community is really important. Prayer and share, Bible study, mission work, working with others. The church has known this for years. Working together will increase your own joy. Collaborate on problem solving. Coping with traumatic experience, there's a lot of talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, and I deal with that in prison, and I've been working with a group uh, uh, on soul repair. Soul repair is about what do you do with servicemen, veterans who've returned, who have angst about something they've done. They did their duty, they didn't violate the rules, and they feel terrible about it. Coping with traumatic experiences by writing about them and sharing this led to a 50% drop in visits to the psychiatrists and psychologists and reduced anxiety. Writing and talking about worse problems led to positive outcome. Many individuals, this is a different study, many individuals report positive life changes in the aftermath of stressful life events and benefit finding Counting your blessings may have beneficial effects for physical health. Psychological resilience is characterized by coping flexibility and the ability to bounce back from stressful experiences. Prayer and medication really help. Resilience is built by becoming more aware, more mindful. Individuals who'd suffered panic attacks improved dramatically when taught taught how to do mindfulness mindfulness exercises, as in meditation or centering prayer. Trying to get rid of depression is a problem-solving way or a fix about what's wrong, quote-unquote, with us, and it just digs deeper that rumination is part of the problem. So focusing only on the bad, trying to dig your way out of depression, makes it worse. Instead, Opening your mind to other possibilities through prayer and meditation is a path to reduce anxiety. So centering prayer and contemplative prayer are really good for your health.
Mindfulness increases the likelihood of peak experiences, the kind of spiritual experiences that, uh, you know, you don't want to have to have something like St. Paul where he knocks you off your horse, okay, on the road to Damascus. You're here, so you already know this. But for some people, like me, it had to be hit upside the head before I got it. And those kind of spiritual experiences are sometimes like called positive trauma, like Paul experienced. Peak experience is a generalization for the best moments and experiences of life. Rapture, ecstasy, bliss, of joy. And sometimes if you just open your eyes, you'll see it. This morning was a gorgeous sunrise. It was like, wow, thank you, Lord. But I remember taking stuff like that for granted. Oh, yeah, it's a nice day. Maybe it'll rain. One who lives with his religious center of personal energy and is activated by spiritual enthusiasms differs from his previous carnal self. That's from a secular psychological study. Incidentally, if you're interested in all this, I'll email you the studies. I'll email you the list of the studies. You can go find them yourself. Focus, <laughs> I don't have all of them. I use the internet. Focus on the divine. Mystical experience. This is really interesting that, that someone in psychology would write this and sounds like theology. Mystical experience is an off button for the self. When the self is turned off, people become part of a larger entity. Wow. Okay? So putting yourself aside lets you see things you wouldn't other otherwise see. Now this is, I'm going to quote Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. He described himself as an agnostic Jew. Okay? And he wrote this. It's no wonder that the after effects of mystical experience are predictable people usually feel a stronger commitment to God or to helping others, often by bringing them to God. It is contagious. Religion has always served to coordinate and orient people's behavior toward each other and the group. And now the hard part, forgiveness. Now I believe you all should forgive others for their sins against you. I pray that prayer every day. But... Me? Should I forgive people, the bastards that did bad things to me? It's not easy. It's really not easy. But the psychological studies have shown what we in the church have known for years, that bitterness, a refusal to forgive, and a focus on negative events blocks the emotions of contentment and satisfaction. Bitterness makes serenity and peace impossible. They did one study, I love this study, they did a workshop on forgiveness. They weren't telling people to actually forgive people, just doing a workshop on forgiveness. And they compared it with a workshop on conflict resolution, but not forgiveness. And they compared the two groups. And the group that just did a workshop on forgiveness yielded less anger, less stress, more optimism, and better health. So all you got to do is learn how to do it, even if you can't yet do it. Please don't push people to forgive. I've worked with victims of crime. You don't push them helping to understand that the pull is a more serene life. The pull, when you forgive, is you'll feel better yourself. You won't be anchored and trapped with the wrongdoer. Churches can do things that increase individual happiness, promote mental health, stimulate spiritual growth. These activities are consistent with religious practices through the ages, and they build on the current activities of churches like yours right now. It's not, you have to invent something new. Now, I came to God in 1999, or to be more precise, like St. Paul, God came to me. I was not 
asking for help. Um, I told you, in Lent, I would lose weight. It was kind of interesting. I had two sets of clothes, the clothes that I could wear around Easter and the rest of the year, fat clothes. (laughs) I'm not proud of this, but it's true. I mean, you know, it's the way it is. And I was wearing some clothes I hadn't been worn in a long time, and it was St. Patrick's Day, 1999. I remember this very, very clearly. I was alone. No one was with me. And it was one of those years where Lent started late or started early, and by St. Patrick's Day, I'd already lost 20 pounds, and there's another couple weeks left to go. And, you know, the calendar moves around a little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. And so Patrick's Day was earlier than, or later than usual, and I'd already lost the weight. I'm thinking, well, I'd really like a drink, you know, like that. And I, <laughs> and I said, and offhand, kind of like, well, what do you want me to do, God? And I, I, I wasn't a believer, okay? Agnostic, yeah, maybe he's there, maybe not. When my grandmother died, I, my prayer was, well, Lord, help her. Lord, if you exist, please help her. That's a half-assed prayer, if I ever heard one, but better than no prayer. And so, what do you want me to do, God, was a throwaway line, and I sat down, and I felt a bulge in my back pocket. These were pants I hadn't worn in five years. And I pulled out this paper that had gone through the wash. You know, so it was all, boom. And it was the story of the rich young man. And Jesus says... He asked Jesus. There are three versions of this, and they're all very, very the same. One version says Jesus looked at him and loved him when he asked that. And the man said, I keep all the commandments. And Jesus said, good, you have only one more thing you've got to do. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. And I realized how screwed up my life had become. So, I understand St. Paul's conversion. It wasn't something he initiated. And you can't make a conversion happen with someone. But God can. In fact, he's knocking on the door of our hearts every day. Right now. Let me in, I love you. Let me in, I love you. And for 30 years, I said no. So what is under your control is the ability to say no. It's God's gift. I have a book that's entitled How They Found Christ, and it's about all these people talking about their conversion experiences. And the theme that runs through it is, they didn't find Christ, Christ found them. And you and me. We must say yes and accept his love. Now, it's not easy to accept God's love, especially this part about forgiveness. So let me tell you a story. Because I do work in prison. I had a guy in prison. I've done work in five states, and I promised this man I would not say his name. So my friend uh, was a very withdrawn kind of person. And the reason he was withdrawn and quiet was because he had spent two decades on death row. 20 years in solitary confinement. It's a form of torture, mental torture. And he was on the gurney. The needles were in his arm, waiting for the lethal injection, and the phone rang, and the governor's office spared him, and he'll spend the rest of his life in prison. So I understand why he's withdrawn. And he said one day in the small group we were meeting, he said, I wrote her a letter. 
And he didn't say anything else. Everybody was quiet. And I said, what? And he said, I wrote a letter to the woman whose husband I killed, the widow that he killed way back then. And I asked her to forgive me. Ooh. We're real quiet now. And he said, pulling out an envelope, and she wrote back. Now, the prison reads all your mail, but he had, it became clear he had not read it. It was a long silence. He had not read it. And I know why. Because he thought she would say, screw you. He thought she'd be another one of the many people that over all of his life had said, you're no good. To hell with you. Forgive you, forget it. He was ready for rejection because he'd experienced it all of his entire life. Another guy grabbed the letter and read it. <laughs> and read it aloud. I forgave you 20 years ago. And I've been pray, praying for you every day since. I'm sorry, I can't tell this story without remembering the feeling that happened. It was as if the Holy Spirit just showed up right then and there. And for all of us who were sitting in the room, it was like, hallelujah, this is really it. This is what God means by forgiveness. That woman had been praying for him for 20 years. And God answered those prayers continually, sustaining him, helping him, freeing him from the gurney of death, and finally freeing him from the crap that had burdened him all his life. Thank you, Father. Thank you. You know, if uh, maybe some of you would like to see a miracle... Come with us into prison and maybe you can be in one. So how do we change? Conclusion. This is a conclusion. Am I running out of time? I don't know. I, I, I lose track. My wife usually goes like this. Uh, but conclusion. How do we change? The Wesleyan tradition, we're in a former Methodist church, and Wesley was a great guy. He was Episcopal rector of a church in Savannah, Georgia, so I can claim him as one of my denomination. I'm ecumenical, Institute, incidentally. I'm on a committee of the Roman Catholic Archdiocese on family life. I'm a human rights minister for the Disciples Justice Action Network, which is part of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, which is a Protestant church. And uh, I'm in Kairos, which is totally ecumenical. So I, I love, quote, Wesley, though. He said, and he had a strange warming of the heart. That's when he realized he was born again. Now, for some of us, being born again is a lifelong process. It happens in little steps. I pray that will be for your children, little steps of gaining it, okay? For some, like St. Paul, you've got to fall off your horse and be blind for three days. And most of us are somewhere in between, you know? But it's always God's initiative. How do you know you're chosen? Because you're here. So I know you're chosen. He loves you. He loved you before you got here, too. But it's God's initiative. He's asking us to repent. Repent means changing your ways. Getting rid of the things the world loves. Power, 
money, sex, wealth, all that stuff, and thinking about what really counts. Accepting God's love, that's number two. You've got to open your heart. Stop saying no to God. And third, then work with your other Christian brothers and sisters to do God's will. Now, he has a fancy word for that called sanctification. Don't worry about the theological term. What it means is you will become a holy person if you work with other holy people to do holy works. Okay? Share your experiences with others. Count your blessings. Pray and meditate. Follow God's call. What's God calling you to do? He's calling each and every one of us to love our neighbors. He wants you to help with his mission. He wants you to spread the good news. He wants you to love your children and your neighbors and everybody. He wants you to love one another. He wants you to feed the hungry. He wants you to clothe the naked. He wants you to help the homeless. He wants you to visit the prisoners. He wants you to free the oppressed. He wants you to help people solve their problems and fight injustice and forgive each other. That's the hard part. But all of this will help you to become joyful. And I really would like to sort of end with a prayer now, if that's okay, Jason. I don't want to keep going on and on and on. I just think the, the answer's been sitting there in plain sight, and I missed it for 30 years. And it's about loving your neighbor. It's about repenting, following God, and doing what he tells you to do. And you'll be happy, and I'm extraordinarily happy now. And I wish it for everyone. And so... Just to close in prayer, thank you very much again for helping us. And I love the, our mother, dead yet she speaketh, St. Paul, dead but he speaketh. And you, at some point, will join them. And you'll continue to speak in the heads of the people that you've met. And especially the ones, the young ones that you've helped along the way. So... Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful day and for the opportunity to serve you. Thank you, Father, for friends and family and colleagues and brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for helping us to know your will. And please, Father, help us to become the persons that you want us to be. Help us to put away the things of the world and to follow your word and to serve you and help us to become changed into a servant for your will be done. Ask all this in Jesus' holy name.